When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right. I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of an update. This is going to be a mini episode where I hope to accomplish two things. One, I want to introduce the Doximity Match Smarter segment. The Match Smarter segment is an initiative we began with Doximity to connect you with program directors, residents, and applicants from top residency programs to help you navigate your specialty choice and the residency process as a whole. So you should check out Doximity's Residency Navigator at residency.doximity.com to get the most transparent and personalized advice on programs you're considering. Doximity is the leading professional network for clinicians. And if you haven't already completed your Doximity profile, go to docs.im, that's D-O-X dot I-M slash inside the boards and register for Doximity today. Anyone who registers will be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card if they follow that link. So what we're going to do with the podcast this interview season is tack on to the beginning of the show, the Match Smarter segment. So we're still going to be bringing you interviews with leaders in the board preparation space. We've got interviews lined up with Yermi Cohen from Memorang, Adeleke Adesani from Smash USMLE. We've got the folks from Osmosis coming aboard and an interview with Conrad Fisher as well. And speaking of Osmosis, Osmosis is a personalized learning platform for medical school It's really cool. You should check it out at osmosis.org. But what we're going to be doing for the Study Smarter series, where we take questions and dissect them over the podcast, is use the Open Osmosis Question Bank, which you should check out. These are free questions. There's about 500 for all the main kind of like specialties. You can find them at open.osmosis.org. And what we're going to do on the podcast is just take a topic and then discuss five to ten questions related to that topic from the Open Osmosis database. So stay tuned. We've got the Match Smarter segment coming up with Dr. Peter Taub, who's a plastic surgeon. But as always, the Inside the Boards podcast is about learning primarily. So for this mini episode, we're going to cover just two important high-yield points, which I'll admit it was a little hard to find something exactly relevant to plastic surgery for a medical student, but here are two questions which are incredibly high yield for the boards. 
mainly probably for like the OBGYN shelf exam or step two, but these are kind of related to plastic surgery. So here we go. A 25-year-old woman comes to the outpatient clinic for a prenatal checkup. She is at 10 weeks gestation. Moreover, she has a history of epilepsy that has been medically managed. She has no complaints and her vital signs are normal. Her triple screen is positive for an elevated maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein, and further testing reveals that the fetus has the expected congenital defects. Which of the following supplements could this patient have taken to reduce her baby's risk of this congenital abnormality? A. Biotin B. Folate C. Riboflavin D. Vitamin A or E. Vitamin D. And the answer is, of course, folate. All right, so what do you need to know about folic acid supplementation in pregnancy? So pregnant women with a seizure disorder are an increased risk for congenital anomalies in general, but specifically anticonvulsants can be associated with particular defects, all right? So the big one, open neural tube defects, spina bifida, Classic question on board exams relates to uh, a patient with a seizure disorder who has a fetus with spina bifida or an infant born with spina bifida. And the way you prevent this is to supplement with folic acid. In fact, it's recommended that all pregnant women receive folic acid supplementation, most importantly, preconceptually but also until the time the neural tube closes. So we're looking at roughly six weeks after conception or eight weeks gestational age. That's the most important time for folic acid to exert its preventative benefit. Now, patients who have a seizure disorder and are on anti-epileptic medication should receive higher doses of folic acid, but all pregnant women need to be on folic acid. All right, so if somebody doesn't take folic acid and they end up developing the abnormality associated with anti-epileptic drugs like valproic acid or carbamazepine, how would you diagnose it? Well, one of the ways is through the triple screen referred to within the stem of this question, which contains the analytes alpha-fetoprotein, beta-HCG, and estriol. The quad screen, which is more commonly used nowadays, adds inhibin to the panel. But here's the important point. Alpha-fetoprotein, when it is elevated in the maternal serum, indicates a neural tube defect or an abdominal wall defect like gastroschisis. I always think of this as alpha-fetoprotein is circulating throughout the baby's bloodstream, and if there's a hole in the abdomen or the spine, the alpha-fetoprotein will spill out and get into mom's blood. This isn't exactly what occurs physiologically, but it's a good heuristic to help you remember that alpha-fetoprotein is elevated in the presence of open neural tube defects and abdominal wall defects. So the high-yield learning points, number one, all pregnant women should get folic acid supplementation to prevent spina bifida. Those on anti-epileptic drugs should receive higher doses. And elevated maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein is associated with open neural tube defects. But let's look at the other answer choices. So A was biotin. 
Biotin is found in prenatal vitamins, but hasn't been shown to decrease the risk of neural tube defects. Riboflavin, also found in prenatal vitamins, has not been shown to decrease the risk of neural tube defects either. Vitamin A, which was answer choice D. Vitamin A is a retinoid, so if you think of isotretinoin, it is advised against taking this during pregnancy because vitamin A in high doses can cause congenital anomalies. So vitamin A can actually cause craniofacial defects. And see, this is why this question is somewhat related to plastic surgery. If there's an oral cleft, a plastic surgeon would have to fix it. Uh, sorry, that's not exactly um, uh, the best fit. I might be stretching a little bit, but hey, it was the best I could do. And then answer choice E, which was vitamin D. Vitamin D is also found in prenatal vitamins, but there's no benefit uh, to taking it in terms of reducing the risk of neural tube defects. All right, next question. A 36-year-old Caucasian female underwent a prophylactic double mastectomy after the death of her mother and aunt and testing positively for the BRCA1 gene. Besides genetics, what other risk factor increases a woman's chance of developing breast cancer? A. Breast implants. B. Obesity. C. Use of antiperspirants with aluminum. Or D. A history of abortion or miscarriage. The answer is B. Obesity. All right, so this is one of the reasons osmosis is great. This question is built around the actress Angelina Jolie, who made headlines worldwide when she announced that she was going to get a double mastectomy. The operation reduces the chances of developing breast cancer by 90% of women who carry the BRCA1 mutation. And genetics are thought to play a role in about 10% of breast cancers. But another important risk factor is obesity, with the others, including advanced age, early menstruation, late menopause, alcohol use, or the use of combined hormone replacement therapy. That is hormone replacement therapy that contains both estrogen and progesterone. This is an important point that a lot of medical students confuse. Not all HRT increases the risk for breast cancer. It's just progesterone and estrogen combined hormone replacement therapy, which is given to women who still have a uterus, right? Because if you gave them estrogen alone, which has no effect on breast cancer risk, you could actually set them up for developing endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. Therefore, if a woman has a uterus and she requires hormone replacement therapy to treat hot flashes, vaginal dryness, and some of the other symptoms that occur perimenopausally or beyond menopause, you must give her combined progesterone and estrogen HRT. But this does slightly increase the risk compared to women who aren't on HRT with progesterone and estrogen of breast cancer. The way to think about this is to use another heuristic. If a woman is obese, we know that there's a lot more peripheral aromatization of androgens to estrogen within adipose tissue. So I try to remember the risk factors for breast cancer by considering that anything that overall exposes a woman to more estrogen, and again, this is a heuristic, I'm not saying this is exactly the way the physiology goes, but it can help you remember it. If there's more estrogen around overall during a woman's life, she's going to be at a higher risk for breast cancer. All right, so 
how to think in these terms. Number one, obesity, aromatase, converts androgens and adipose to estrogens, so therefore obesity increases the risk for breast cancer. Early menarche exposes a woman to more cycles of, of estrogen production within her body by her ovaries, so early menarche, late menopause. The longer time in her life she is exposed to a higher level of estrogen, the more she'll be at risk for breast cancer. Nulliparity, right? If a woman never has a baby, doesn't become pregnant, she'll not reap the benefits of having no cycling while she's pregnant and then lactating, which also increases the risk for breast cancer. And chronic alcohol use. You can think about what happens when somebody is an alcoholic and develops cirrhosis due to excessive alcohol intake. Overall, in cirrhotic patients, there is an overall increase in estrogen, and therefore they develop things like spider angiomata, which are those like spider nevi, palmar erythema, gynecomastia, hypogonadism. Um, all of these things can be thought of as related to excessive estrogen. How's this related to plastic surgery? Uh, again, kind of a stretch, I'll admit, but since plastic surgeons often end up taking care of women after mastectomies and helping restore their anatomy through mammoplasty, see, it's, it's, it's related. Um, but that's all I have for today. I got to get back to studying for my oral board exams and We'll be back after November 9th with a new episode. And for now, our first Match Smarter segment brought to you by Doximity. So welcome back to the Match Smarter segment of the Inside the Boards podcast brought to you by Doximity. Today we have Dr. Peter Taub, who is a professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where he is also the associate program director for plastic surgery, chief of craniomaxillofacial surgery, and director of the cleft and craniofacial program. Not to mention, he has his own Wikipedia page. So, Peter, thanks for uh, taking time um, to uh, have a chat with me. My, my pleasure. So, plastic surgery. Um, I remember as a med student thinking, huh, that seems interesting. But all the general surgery residents I knew, um, they, they seemed so stressed out at the end of fourth year, fifth year, whatever. And the thought of doing another two years on top of a general surgery fellowship or a general surgery residency sounded terrible. So, that was out for me. But as I understand, there are two ways to become a plastic surgeon. Is that true? Uh, there are. And I think the paradigm is changing. When I graduated from medical school, I had known I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. But uh, those who were above me and had done it all did it through general surgery, which is sort of the traditional model. You were a full board certified general surgeon um, and then went on to do a second residency in plastic surgery. They used to call it like a fellowship, but it wasn't a fellowship. It was a true second residency, and that was two years uh, and has now increased to three years. So that was what it was for me. There were a few, uh, I guess, uh, what they called uh, newer, what they called integrated programs where you started plastic surgery out of medical school. Um, those were rare at the time, but now they are sort of more common, um, and that's the way more people uh, are doing it. Why should somebody go into plastic surgery? 
I think you have to love what you what you think you're going to do. Uh, if you if you strip it down, I think if you're going to be a surgeon, I think you have to love being in the operating room. Uh, that's what somebody told me once, and I and I I wasn't really sure what he or she meant by it, but I but I now as a, as a practicing plastic surgeon for ten to fifteen years, you do have to love being in the operating room. As far as plastics is concerned, you have to really understand what plastic surgery is um, and enjoy that kind of case volume or case mix. Yeah, and I think a misconception amongst the general population, certainly, but but even some medical students, is that plastic surgery is just aesthetics, and that is also not the case, correct? Yeah, that's a big misconception. I, I give the lecture to third-year clerks here at Mount Sinai, and I start out with pictures of uh, shows that were on TV called The Swan and Extreme Makeover, uh, Dr. 90210, that sort of glorify that aesthetic component. There's nothing wrong with aesthetic surgery, but it is one small facet of, of the overriding discipline of plastic surgery. Uh, as plastic surgeons, we are pediatric plastic surgeons. We are reconstructive breast surgeons. We are hand surgeons. We are microsurgeons. We are a lot of things to a lot of different people, and it's not just an aesthetic surgery discipline. Let's say there's a fourth-year medical student out there, um, or even beforehand, third, second years, thinking about their career and they're thinking plastic surgery, what advice would you give to them as they consider your field as a specialty? Personally, I think it's the most wonderful specialty. There's a lot of great specialties, and, and I, I don't know if I had a better time uh, in third year of medical school sort of seeing everything and doing everything, and when I was on cardiology, I loved that, and when I was on psychiatry, I loved that. I always knew I wanted to do plastic, so I think you have to love plastic surgery and, and what, it, what it's about. So that's what's great about it. Uh, the other side of the coin is that it is, I think, nowadays the hard, the single hardest specialty to get into, and I, and we can go into a lot of reasons why that is. Uh, but our our dean says that, that plastics is the hardest to get into. Uh, for that reason, I think you got to start preparing early and planning early, um, and a, and a heavy bu burden of that is going to be some research in in the field. Okay. So let's talk about that then. Um, as far as uh, residency candidates go, what's your ideal one look like? I gave a talk on this at the Plastic Surgery Research Council in Seattle about two to three years ago. And the question posed to me was, you know, what are you looking for in a resident? First, I put up a picture of Mickey Mantle, and the other one was Bryce Harper. And, and these two guys, what they have in common, they're both baseball players, but they were sort of called, uh, I think, five-tool players. And in baseball, that means you can hit for power, you can hit for averages, you're a defensive whiz, you can run the bases, you sort of did everything. And I think a little of that is what we, what I look for in, in, in a candidate, in a resident. I want somebody who has a good, strong academic record, uh, meaning they've done well on their third year clerkships where they've shown their wares and, and the residents enjoyed working with them and they did well on the shelf exam. So that's one component. I look for a candidate who has done well on the USMLE scores and some programs use that as sort of a gateway to, to interview or not interview. I look at what you've done uh, research-wise. You know, have you shown an interest in plastic surgery um, and maybe written some papers, done some presentations? You know, nowadays, there's so many venues to get involved. Uh, most medical schools have their own medical school research day, and uh, there's graduate medical education research day. Uh, so there's a lot of venues to do research and show that you have an interest in, in making the specialty better. So that means a lot to me. I also want to make sure that, you know, your letters are good, that those who know you have written a good letter and not, and letters can be tricky. Uh, letters can be, uh, he did a very good job, which doesn't sound too bad, 
but that's not a letter that glows about this person. So I, I look for letters uh, where the people we know uh, are sort of glowing about this, saying this is one of the better medical students we've had in some time. And then the other thing, is I'd like you to have some kind of interest outside of medicine. Um, we've had some, some strange um, applicants who wrote down that they enjoy watching basketball, um, which I thought was a little odd. Uh, I'd rather you be participate in pottery, uh, enjoy biking, um, knit, play the piano, something outside of medicine that shows you have some, some dimension. Yeah. I mean, at root, the, the word plastic connotes creation or making, molding, crafting. So I, I'm sure there is something about that artistic aspect of the mind that's essential to, say, being a plastic surgeon over maybe being a GYN oncologist or a surgical oncologist or something of that nature. Absolutely. I think there's a spatial relations. There's a, there's how you, how you can see something and how it's going to change and mold, uh, and how you're going to get from point A to point B. I, uh, interviewed at the university of Texas, uh, Southwestern uh, a long time ago. And when I got there, they gave us a spatial relations test. They had a bunch of, they had a folded up box, a picture of a folded up box with, with something different on every side of the box. And then they had five examples of what it would look like or possibly look like unfolded. And you had to pick the correct one. So you had to sort of in your mind's eye fold up these five boxes and then compare it to the to the answer. So they wanted you to sort of stimulate. They wanted to see how you could do this. And I thought it was actually quite interesting and quite good. Okay. So what to expect nowadays for an interview in your specialty? Interviews are so different. I, I eventually would like to do a sort of um, a panel discussion on what people look for in an interview. Yeah. And I think interviews from person to person are different, from institution to institution are different. And I think we actually, we, I don't think we do them as well as we could. But basically, um, you want that program to get a sense of who you are on a real level. A lot of programs, and especially ours, we look for a fit. We look for somebody who's going to mesh well with those who are there and those who will teach that person for six years. Uh, you're there for a good chunk of time. You don't want uh, a, a brilliant loner who's not going to interact. You want somebody who who's going to get along with all the residents there uh, and help those residents and teach those residents and be a mentor to your students and do so in an amicable way. Um, it's, it's great that you have brilliant minds and brilliant surgeons who do well on the boards, but if they have sort of a funk about them, a sort of a downtrodden behavior, that's not very good either. You know, that is the overarching theme. I think that a lot of program directors with whom I've spoken uh, for this segment uh, have mentioned that is an essential aspect that it seems like should go without saying that there's a sort of um, collegiality that apparently must be lacking in some applicants uh, to where this this does need stated, but I, I guess just to drive home the point that um, really working on being a sociable person while also having those outstanding marks and um, other credentials is is absolutely essential to securing the residency you want. Let's say this. So you mentioned a few um, aspects of a, a good plastic surgery uh, applicant. How would you advise a candidate? to address a deficiency perhaps in their application. Maybe they have stellar marks, but they took a year off of medical school for a family problem, or I don't know, maybe don't have as much research as they should have. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there are different things can be addressed in different ways. I think the first example you gave is if you've taken some time off and it doesn't look like you have that interest, um, I think you have to address that, either address it in your personal statement or somehow address it in what you've done since then. 
Uh, research is harder, and I and it, it's it's tough to really convince that first year medical student to to sign on and decide this is what you want to do for the rest of your life because you got to start doing some research uh, either with the department in house or a department out of your own medical school. Uh, but it's it's research is tough. Research you can't turn around and just get it out there and have it accepted and published in a span of six weeks. That can often take a year. So and medical students are busy. So it's it's something that really has to be thought about uh, early on. And, and here at Mount Sinai, we have a we have a great group of students who sort of help each other. The fourth years sort of enlighten the first years and, and push them along and get them started on projects, which is great. So it's hard to do that uh, coming up as a fourth year medical student with no research and deciding you wanted to go into plastics. You know, for that re- for that student, uh, I may may recommend doing a year in a lab somewhere. You know, somewhere you, where you may want to end up for your residency, but somewhere where you can get to know the people there. Somewhere you, where you can get some stuff done uh, in a relatively short amount of time. Again, a year is not a lot for research, so I, I think there's different things and different ways to address different deficiencies. Fair enough. Let's talk about letters. So I'm sure at times you've been approached for a letter for a resident applicant. When you have an applicant who you think is outstanding, what type of letter, what sort of things do you cover in your letter of recommendation? Yeah, I think letters are another tricky spot because I think no one wants to write a bad letter. And I don't know if I've ever seen a a bad letter. Uh, What we have are letters where you read between the lines, uh, you know sort of buzzwords from the letter writer. Um, and if it's not really overly glowing, then it's not a great letter. It can read very well word for word, but uh, what you're looking for is is a letter from a, um, a mentor or somebody you've worked with who really wants to go a little bit a little bit out on a limb for you and say, I've worked with this person. I know this person. I've seen this person um, sit at the bedside of a patient, not because he had to, but because he or she wanted to. Um, I know this person will will be a star. I know this person is one of the best medical students we've had in a long time. Uh, this person goes above and beyond. These are sort of words that you want to see in a letter. Uh, you also want the letters to be from people you know, and that way you can sort of interpret them. Some people write uh, a great letter for everybody, and, and each letter becomes less valuable. Others are more distinct, you know, discreet in who they give a fantastic letter to, such that that letter that when it comes through really means a lot. Sure. So I think that's probably an important point for those who are maybe earlier on in their undergrad medical education, that to get a good letter, uh, I suppose, regardless of what specialty you're going to go into, finding somebody who can be your mentor, who really knows you is going to be essential to the um, the content between the lines that are written, really showcasing the relationship that you have with that person as a mentee and getting the residency um, application letter that you really want. It's probably pretty difficult to just, you know, even a couple months before, uh, you know, applications are due to send a, an email to the chair of the, the plastic surgery department at your school and say, hey, I'm applying. I need I need a letter. That's just not going to work, I assume. A, you're not going to get the kind of letter you want. It's not impossible, and, and it's done a lot, but but trying to get a letter on a sub-internship, a, a, a sub away rotation, um, you're only there for anywhere from two to four weeks, and you'd have to do a really, really good job to get a great letter. And that's, as I'm saying, that's not impossible. It's, it, it's done, and, I, and I, will, I will write that letter uh, personally, but a better letter is from somebody who's known you for a couple of years. And, and the caveat is it's not one letter. You really need two to three letters like that. Uh, and that can be difficult and a challenge. But for the candidate that, that does have those three letters, 
uh, from somebody who's known them more than four weeks, that speaks volumes. And I think it's, it's, it's a very strong selling point for that candidate. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into the specifics. I mean, you alluded to this a little bit before, but if I had to pin you down and ask you what you consider the three most important aspects of a residency application for your specialty, what would you pick? I think I would start with research because I think it shows not not the actual research, but I think it shows a commitment to the specialty. Uh, when we see candidates who have you know a page of of papers related to neurosurgery or ENT or or geriatrics. You know, there's some something's going on there. They obviously didn't have that passion for plastic surgery at the beginning, and now for some reason have changed. And again, that's okay, but you have to explain that somehow. So, so some body of research in plastic surgery I find very important. Number two is let well-written letters from people we know. Uh, plastic surgery is not a huge specialty as medicine or surgery are, so most people know most of the letter writers. Uh, so to get a letter from somebody you know glowing about a, a candidate speaks volume. And then I think the third one is, is your grades. You know, how well you did that third year. Um, yes, UMLE scores are, 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 are important, but I, I would say more grades. Uh, you know, somebody who's going into surgery probably should have gotten honors in their surgical clerkship. You know, we're, we're so competitive in plastic surgery that actually most, and I'm, I'm actually sitting at my desk looking at some candidates now, most of them have gotten honors in most of their third year specialties. And, and I think that speaks volumes. If you know someone has gone through honors, 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 honors in OBGYN and medicine and peds, it really shows that they can take that discipline and apply it to any specialty. It means that they work well, not with that general surgery type intern, but also that pediatric type intern. They're malleable. They, they work hard no matter what the circumstance. Let's say somebody is just going through their general surgery clerkship at the end of the year, right? And they've gone yep. through everything else. And they just can't see themselves doing the other required specialties. They have a two-week rotation with a plastic surgeon at the end of their third year. And they think, oh, my gosh, this is the coolest specialty ever. This is what I want to do with my life. And they haven't had much research, but they've had decent grades. What would their next step be in, in considering a career in plastics? tough question because I think it depends on the person. If that person is is on the younger side and has sort of gone through college and right into medical school and, and is not concerned with starting a family and wanting to really do the best they can, I might recommend going into a high-end research program, working at the NIH for a year, uh, working in one of the programs within our specialty that runs an active lab uh, that's always publishing and always having stuff done, really to build up that CV. I, I think in some ways you sort of shoot yourself in the foot a little bit if you, you apply and don't match because in a way it's not that you're a bad person, but you're sort of damaged goods. You didn't make it through the first time. And I'd love to look at and, and study how what percentage of candidates actually match on their second time around. But I, I think I would try for that person who has time to spare to really build up as best you build up your resume as best you can. For the candidate that may not have that kind of time, is married, wants to get through the residency program and start their career, they may have to apply to a lot of programs. They may have to accept programs that are smaller programs, not bad programs, but smaller programs that others may not consider and do those kind of programs in smaller venues. All right. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but let me ask you this. What is the greatest thing about your day-to-day -day work as a plastic surgeon that you still enjoy and enjoyed from day one? 
I think the greatest thing about about surgery, maybe, and, and I think plastic surgery as well, is that I come early in the morning. I, I don't mind getting up. I get here at about six 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 fifteen in in the morning, and I don't look at my watch or I don't look at a clock until I leave. I turn around and oh my gosh, it's already eight o'clock or seven o'clock at night. I can't believe where the day went. I was enjoying myself so much during the day. I didn't look at it. Uh, you know, growing up in high school and college, I had jobs where I was in, in a department store or at a desk. And I probably looked at the clock every hour saying, oh my gosh, I have eight hours to go. Oh my gosh, I have seven hours to go. And it was just, it was counting down time. Um, nowadays I, I show up in the morning and before I know it, it's the end of the day. And, and I've, I've kept my mind busy, my mind sharp. I've enjoyed what I've done. Yes, it can be stressful at times, but I just, I leave knowing that I had a full day. That's awesome. So why should somebody consider plastic surgery as a career nowadays? Plastic surgery is the new general surgery. Um, I tell our students that we're, I, I think we're the only specialty that operates from the top of the head to the bottom of the foot. We're the only specialty that works with hair and bone and skin and muscle and tendon and cartilage. Uh, we deal with kids. We deal with adults. We deal with benign problems. We deal with malignant problems. We deal with trauma and we deal with aesthetic problems. I don't think any other specialty uh, really has that kind of breadth. Um, I'm sure that, you know, when you get out into the real world, people specialize. But for me, it's that challenge of, of being comfortable all over the place. Um, I don't hesitate if if I'm doing a case with one of our GYN oncologists, I love to stay and watch what they do. Uh, you know, and, and we may have to repair something that they've done. Um, and we, we sort of work with our oncologist, surgical oncologists. Then the next day we may be working with our pediatric ENT colleagues. Um, I think that variety and, and, and it really stimulating. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, any other parting words, advice, or anything else you'd like to add? I, I think a candidate, you know, coming out of medical school should should enjoy what they do, not do it for some other reason. And I think eventually um, they shouldn't they should they should live where they want, so that you know they can do what they want. I don't think you have to uh, to train in the city you're eventually going to land in, but I think you should shoot for the stars. Really try and get into the best, the hardest, the most challenging residency you can, and then decide what you want to do from there. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Patrick, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. So there you have it. The first Match Smarter segment on the Inside the Boards podcast brought to you by Doximity. Don't forget, check out the Residency Navigator tool at residency.doximity.com and head over to insidetheboards.com slash podcast where you can listen to our previous episodes and find a link to complete your Doximity profile and be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card during this residency interview season. You can follow us on social media at Facebook or Instagram.com slash Inside the Boards or on Twitter at Boards Insider. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media with your friends. I would really appreciate you helping us spread the word. If you have ideas, feedback, or suggestions for the podcast, email us at info at insidetheboards.com. I'd love to hear if you have some ideas for further episodes in the future. If you'd like to come on and do perhaps a shelf exam review or something like that, you have suggestions for people we should interview, let us hear it. Also, you can leave a question recorded 
by going to insidetheboards.com slash podcast and clicking the SpeakPipe link on the side of the page. I'd love to have you participate, and I thank you so much again for taking the time to listen. The intro music to today's show is by Everyone Leaves. The tune is Seasonal Effective. You can check them out at everyoneleavesband.com. Until next time, happy studying. I'm off to study for my oral board exam, so wish me luck. Thanks again. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.